All right. Well, with all that exciting, positive info, we start out with a very sad aspect in our first verse in chapter 25. It starts out, now Samuel died. Um, we hadn't heard from him in a while. He's getting on in years, and at, this is just at the point in the middle of all that David is going through. I'm sure losing one of his strongest spiritual mentors was difficult. Um, but Samuel had had a long, fruitful life, faithful man, and God called him home at this time. And so David, even at this point, loses a great spiritual mentor. Israel loses a beloved spiritual leader. But interestingly enough, and this is all I'm going to say about it, don't think this is the last we're going to hear of Samuel in this book. And I'm not going to go any further than that, but he's going to rise up again. And we'll see that later on. If you don't know why, because he's dead, we'll find out later. It does, there's probably a good chance that as all Israel assembled and mourned for him, that that included David. Somehow, maybe there was some sort of ceasefire agreement. We don't know for sure, but if it says all Israel, you would imagine that David, it says David rose. There's a good chance that somehow he was a part of this funeral procession, so to speak, assembly. They mourned for Samuel. They buried him right there at his home in uh, Ramah. But David knows at the same time. And remember what happened we talked about last week where um, he, God tested David and gave him a perfect opportunity to end all of the running and all of the pursuit of Saul by taking his life. And yet David would not do that because David knew what God's law said. And even though his men were pushing him and everything seemed like, wow, this, is, this has got to be the Lord providing you opportunity to kill Saul, to become king, and we're all free to lead normal lives again. David remembered God's law. And how he had to show and needed to show respect and honor to God's anointed. Saul was still the king. And so David said, no, I can't do that. And we're not going to go into all the details of that. But he gave his case before Saul about why Saul shouldn't be pursuing him anymore. And Saul, even King Saul, gives somewhat of a prophecy about the fact that David will one day be king. And he asked David then to protect his family. A very odd thing for a king who knows that the king, there's another king that will eventually take his place from a different family um, to ask that king, to expect that king, that he would protect his family. And yet David says, yes, I'll do that because he had that covenant with Jonathan, remember? And uh, of course, he's going to follow after that. But David knew, even though Saul went up and Saul had said that, David, I'm not going to pursue you anymore. David knew better. And David is still in hiding. It says, then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. Now, I'm just going to show this once to give you an idea. Uh, we don't need this. up on the screen tonight, but David is now, you see the Dead Sea here, David is now back in this mid area between Philist the Philistines and the Dead Sea, just south of Jerusalem, south of Bethlehem, in this area here, again, south of Ziph. Remember the Ziphites um, let Saul know where David was, where his presence was, they 
betrayed him and Saul pursued him there. David's back in that area now as we get into our story. This is a very interesting story, and there's a lot of detail. Um, The narrator actually um, gives us a few of the details and then kind of steps out of the way and lets the characters just do the talking and interact with each other. Uh, A little bit different from his normal his normal process of giving a lot of details about what's going on. This time the narrator kind of gets out of the way and just lets the story happen. And there's so much detail. Well, we'll see. We'll see how far we get tonight. I'm not going to push this and try to get it all in, even though normally I'd like to get one story per, per evening. I don't want to rush this because there's so much I think that we can learn from this very interesting and um, significant story in David's life. So we're introduced to two people, a couple, and let's just read through verse eight. There's a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and a thousand goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. And he was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young man, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. This is what you'll say to him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young man find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day or a festive day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Two new figures were introduced to here, a married couple that, uh, even in the details, it's obvious they're unbalanced together in their strength of character. Did you pick up on that already? The husband is obviously very wealthy, right? Because I know as soon as you heard 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, you were like, wow, that's a lot of cattle. I mean, how many of you have that many cattle, right? I mean, this man is very wealthy, well-to-do, and he had a lot of servants, and these servants um, were helping. It had become time for the sheep shearing, which for those that own cattle, for those that own sheep, this was kind of like the harvest time where you reap the rewards or the wool from your sheep. And it was a time of celebration and festivity. It was kind of like in, in, a, in a right sense, a party type of atmosphere. There was a lot of rejoicing going on at this time. And this man, this rich man, sent his servants to a neighboring town just north where it seems like all the sheep shearing was done. Maybe they had a facility there and they were doing all of this. And then also at the end of verse three, something else about this man before we give his name, we find out that he's distinguished. He's a distinguished descendant from the line of Caleb. Now, anybody remember who Caleb is? I'll throw that out to you. Just remind us. Anybody who's who Caleb is? Why is that important? He was, uh, he was the other uh, leader that went to scout the land and came back to Joshua. There was a positive result of that. Yeah. 
they were the only two that gave a positive report in the spies. And of course, they were um, Moses servants and, and helpers. And Caleb was a very faithful man. So at this time, you would be very distinguished if you came from his lineage. So the author is pointing out here in these details that, hey, he's from a distinguished tribe, but there's a problem. His name itself is the problem. Anybody know what Nabal means? Mean. What? Mean. Mean. Well, um, they, he's described as mean, but there's an even more specific definition for Nabal. Fool. Just plain old fool. Now, it doesn't matter how distinguished your lineage is. If your name is fool, <laughs> it's probably not a good sign for the rest of the narrative or the story for you. Now, you know, how you might think, well, why would somebody name their child, child fool? <laughs> born and oh this this little baby looks like a fool no it's not problem from what we we probably the best way to understand this is maybe at this point it was some sort of nickname um that the man had it was well known although he was wealthy people knew his character and so this was his name maybe people had forgotten his original name um but regardless in contrast to the man that's named the fool he has a wife named Abigail, who, by the way, her name means my father is joy. And perhaps that means that she brought her own father joy. But as we see throughout this narrative, I think we're going to see that she also brought her heavenly father joy as she gave good wisdom at just the time that David needed it. This woman is wise. She is understanding and she's beautiful. Points out here. And then in contrast, what does it say about the fool, about Nabal? Well, he's ornery and he's capable of wickedness. You see uh, what it says there. He was harsh and badly behaved. That's what the ESV says. The idea of e he was capable of evil deeds, not a good character. So just as a side note, just because someone comes from a distinguished lineage and has famous people in their background, doesn't always mean that they are that they can't choose to act the fool, even with a distinguished heritage. And unfortunately, we're going to see that with, with Nabal. So don't ever judge anybody just because of the family they come from, even. Don't judge somebody because they come from a really bad family, and God can use that person regardless, um, a, a family of poor character. But on the other side of it, many times, with families that are well-known for their character, there can be those that choose to go their own way and end up being fools. And we would hope and pray, I hope even as we start this narrative, that you're reading this saying, you know what? I want my life to be one that has a description of Abigail. I don't want to be known as Nabal, the fool. I don't want that nickname. So I would expect that would be all of our desires tonight. And we're on the right track if that's the case. So. Um, Nabal, ornery, capable of wickedness. And yet David doesn't really have knowledge of this. Um, and we find out here in just a minute that David has been protecting Nabal's shepherds while they've been watching the sheep, probably for quite a while. And it's possible that he might have considered him a distant relative. If he was from the lineage of Caleb, that means that um, his descendants came from Bethlehem. And where did David come from? David came from Bethlehem. And so David knew enough about this man. Maybe he thought, you know, this guy's a distant relative. We could help him out and he could help us out. 
So here we have the shepherd protecting other shepherds. And it's just another um, qual uh, character quality in the list of, of character traits that David has that's exceptional. He's also able to help out other shepherds. And we're going to see that he's been doing that for a while. And then David learns that it's sheep shearing time, as we just read. And so he has an expectation of this person who's his kinmen, kinsman. He has an expectation that he will return the favor and the law, the Torah expected for God's people that if somebody did you a favor, did you good, that you would certainly repay them likewise. So David has an expectation. Again, what did I say? The sheep shearing day was a day of festivity and celebration over all that the Lord has provided. And so David sends some men to communicate to Nabal what they've done so that they can share in the celebration with the provisions that he's hoping will be giving to him and his men. So it says here he sends 10 young men to greet Nabal warmly to describe the service that they had rendered to him, to allow him to verify it with his own servants, and then ask for a donation, return to them for the favor. Let's look back at verse 5. David sent the 10 young men, go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, he knew right where he was, and greet him in my name. And notice how effusive David is here. He's being very careful. David, again, is being very careful with his words and the first thing that he does is he pronounces a blessing upon this man. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house. And in fact, peace be to everything that you own. He's, he's really uh, wanting to put his best foot forward here. There's nothing wrong with that. When you meet somebody for the first time and you're hoping that they can help you out, be kind to them. And then he said, I hear that you have shears. It's sheep shearing time. And I just wanted you to know, Nabal, that we have been protecting your shepherds out here in the wilderness. Um, we protected them. We've done a, a good job with that. And if you uh, doubt that, Nabal, just go ask your shepherds, and they'll tell you that we have been protecting them and, and, and doing a good job keeping them safe in this way. We have done you a great service. We did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. We didn't take anything from them. We were just helping and so he says, because of that, and because it's a festive day where you're sheep shearing, maybe you could find favor for us too. We could find favor in your eyes, and you could help us out as well. All of this meets the law's expectations for how you treat those who render you service. It's God's expectation, David's expectation. There's nothing forward or wrong in this request at all. And David, again, has made a convincing case for why he needs help for himself and for his men. Respectable. And so you would expect a positive response from all this. Except for one problem. We're dealing with a fool. And unfortunately, David's young men come. They're waiting. Um, and verse 9, David's young men came. They said all this to Nabal, exactly. As David said, in the name of David, they made it clear who they were from, and then they waited. And they're waiting for his response. It was like this moment of, you know, wonder what's going to happen. And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears? And give it to men who come from I do not know where. 
So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Unfortunately, Nabal lives up to his name, doesn't he? Foolish response. In fact, it's interesting as we go along in this, nobody argues the fact that he is a fool. Even his own wife won't argue that in a little bit. He is, he, he, uh, is a foolish person even. And, and again, just because someone is wealthy and God has blessed them in many ways doesn't speak of their character. There's a lot of wealthy people in our society today that have horrible characters, very unethical. Now, there's a lot of people that have the God is blessed that do serve him well as well. But it's not automatically a um, factor in one's character because someone is wealthy. And Nabal certainly shows us this. Um, David's messengers are waiting for an answer. And Nabal chooses to answer disparagingly and actually slanders David and his men. He's acting here, to catch this, as if he's never heard of David. Well, of course he's heard of David because the next sentence or phrase in that sentence points out that he knows about David. And David really in Israel right now is the most famous outlaw in Israel. He's the slayer of Goliath, the giant. That happened not too far from where Nabal uh, lives. Certainly he's heard of David. And yet he disparagingly says, David, ah, who's that? Like he's insignificant. Like somebody so insignificant, why would I have even heard of them? Who is the son of, of Jesse? Well, how'd you know he was a son of Jesse? Well, we get the idea of what he's doing here. Um, and then this slander here, basically accusing David of doing wrong and saying that Saul is right and David is wrong because David has been disloyal and has broken away from Saul and is trying to probably, he, he's probably referring to trying to take away the throne all of this, of course, is the exact opposite of what David's doing, as we've seen. And here he slanders this person, uh, David's faithful reputation. And then he says, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat? Notice how often he says the word my. You think he's got a, a self-focused problem? Folks, if you're always constantly talking about your things and my this and my that, let the Holy Spirit work in your heart. That's probably a sign that you are a little too self-focused. And here this man is thinking, my, my, it's all mine. And I've done all of this. And why would I give it to somebody who I'm kind of skeptical? I don't even really know who they are. He's saying basically here um, that David and his men are renegades. They're not worthy of his help or, or aid. And they're not trustworthy. I can't trust this testimony of who you guys are. Basically, have you ever heard the term, the phrase uh, spitting in one's eye? Basically spitting in David's eye here. Contemptible, this response. And so, as you just read, when this is reported back to David, it didn't take long. He's heard enough. And he's fit to be tied. This unexpectedly stupid, really, and evil response pushes him over the edge. Now, why is David so angry? A lot of reasons, and it doesn't tell us all of them here. I think possibly, you know, he, he is one that chooses his words carefully. Remember how we just had the incident with Saul? 
and how wise he was in his words and how effective that was. And even Saul had to admit that David was right. And David has chosen his words carefully in interacting with this man that is a kinsman. And he had expectations that this was going to be successful. And for this man to be so contemptible in his response was just the total opposite of what David expected. And I think it surprised him and I think it angered him. And my guess is as well that David's tired and his men are tired again. And honestly, I think he's just to the point where he's had it. He's tired of people betraying him. He's tired of being on the run. And this foolish um, response, contemptible response from Nabal pushes him over the edge. And so he calls he and 400 of his best men to prepare to battle, not the enemy, but civilians, other Israelites. And that is really the very people God had called him to help, right? Remember we talked about this, that God had called David to help his people in a way that Saul was not even doing. And now David is so angry and so in the moment, he's going to take out 400 of his own, or I'm sorry, a whole household of his own people, the very people he's supposed to be helping. Now, wouldn't you say this is really a raw emotionally charged action. Remember how often we have seen recently where David is constantly checking what God wants him to do. Do we have any indication of that here? No, he's just mad and he doesn't take any time to check and see what God wants him to do. No time to consult with God in this instance. They're out for vengeance because David has had it and woe be to the man and his household who are in their way. Well, this is a serious situation for Nabal and his and Abigail, but also for David. If David is successful in this, this is going to cause some real problems for him. It's interesting. He's just lost an important spiritual mentor in his life. But folks, some, when God takes people like that, precious people out of our lives, he also replaces them. And we're going to see here, verse 14, that God replaces and gives David another very wise, godly, spiritual or helper, advisor, and it's a young lady. And um, her name is, again, is Abigail, verse 14. But one of the young men, one of the servants, came and told Abigail, Nabal's wife. And he said, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master. And he railed at them. He was contemptible. He treated them badly. And yet, here's the tragedy of this. The men were very good to us, verse 15. Listen to how many times he talks about how much good David did to them. We suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. And they were also a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. David is about ready to do a very foolish thing. We have a person that is a fool. And let's differentiate between these two. There are people that truly are what the Bible describes as biblical fools 
Ultimately, a biblical fool is someone that has rejected God's word and is an unbeliever. Nabal, it seems from all indications, is an unbeliever. He is, he is a fool in the full sense of the word. He has rejected God. But folks, even God's servants at times can have foolish moments. And this is David is about to have a very foolish moment where he's not seeking God's will. He's acting on raw anger and wrath. And that is never a good decision, is it? Ever. No excuse. And yet David's about to do something that would be very foolish indeed. And yet God is going to intervene in the midst of his own folly, of David's folly. And this unnamed servant, we don't even know who he was, but he goes to Abigail and alerts her. He says, we're facing our impending doom, basically. If you don't do something, we're all doomed. He says, your husband, again, probably is the meaning there. He, he's given a foolish response. He railed against David and his men, and David did nothing but good to us. He, he testifies of David's good character. David, again, was a good shepherd to the shepherds, and he gave full protection to the group. And again, look at that list there, just so you, we remember the character of David. They were good to us. We suffered no harm. They didn't take anything from us. Um, they were a defense against us both day and night. They were always looking out for us. David went above and beyond protecting these folks. He was deserving, he and his men, of help themselves. And so he realizes the, de the, the devastating response of his master, Nabal. And he basically comes in and says, you need to act quickly, Abigail, because great harm has been determined against us, the entire household. And basically, the point of all this is, Abigail, your wisdom right now, your godly wisdom is our only hope, since our master is so stubborn and foolish. He is such a worthless man. And folks, when we get so stubborn and so hard-edged that we won't listen to godly advice, or even worse, when godly people don't even go to us anymore because they just say they, they never listen. I don't even want to spend my time trying to persuade them. I know they're not going to listen. They're too stubborn. They're, they're too entrenched in their own opinion. They always have to have their own way. And they, they, they don't really want to be told if, if there's a better, wiser way if we are in that position, we are in a very dangerous position. And Nabal, because of his stubborn selfishness and, um, and his, his, uh, really his foolish outlook on life, has now put his whole family in a great deal of danger. And now Abigail is left to pick up the pieces. I have a feeling this wasn't the first time that she found herself in this situation. Just as a side note here, we're not going to get this finished today. We, we don't know the background behind Abigail and Nabal, but doesn't it always, does it come up in your mind when you read this? How did she end up with him? Right? I'd like to know that. I give her the benefit of the doubt. You know, in, in this culture, arranged marriages were the thing. And you didn't get a lot of say a lot of times about who you're going to marry. Sometimes you did. Sometimes you didn't. I would guess that she didn't have a whole lot of say. 
But regardless, she's married to one that's very foolish and it brings great grief upon her. And I think it's important for us to emphasize to young people that are considering marriage that they really take this principle to heart. And that is young people, be careful. Be careful who you attach yourself to. Take time to have premarital counseling. Take time to really think your choice in a mate. And even bring up this story. If you end up choosing a person that rejects God or is foolish most of the time, that people look at them and say their character is weak, it's not good, you're in for a a lifetime of difficult situations. We're going to see later on Abigail apologizes to David because she didn't know of the foolishness of her husband. And she has to live with this man. God's going to protect her too. But um, it, it, it does make for some very difficult situations when you're married to a fool. And that's the idea of the unequally yoked. Don't marry someone who isn't a believer in God, who isn't a, a, a child of the Lord, of, of God. So we'll finish up here and find out because we're wondering, what does Abigail do? Verse 18. So she made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine. Remember, they're in wine skins and five sheep already prepared and five sias. That's over seven liters of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me before I come after you but she did not tell her husband Nabal and as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain behold David and his men came down toward her and she met him now David had said surely in vain now remember he's angry and he well we're getting ahead of things here he says surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Abigail understands that she's in a very desperate situation again. And so she acts swiftly and wisely, and she puts together one woman and her servants, all these provisions that she knows will take care of an army. That's a lot to get together, folks. And she got it together quickly. She's resourceful. She is, she is in essence, is she not a good reflection of what Proverbs 31 talks about? Really, as you read through her character, she reminds me of the Proverbs 31 a woman in this respect. So she gets all this together. She quickly has them put on donkeys. And she says to her young men, get get these gifts out ahead of me so the men can see them. I want them to see that we are acquiescing, that we are trying to give them what they've asked for. They need to see that. You go on before me. But then she takes matters in her own hands as she courageously and bravely says, and I'm going out too. She is going out to face 401 men who are angry, who are wrathful, and are getting ready to destroy her whole family. How much more courageous can you be than that? And brave. And she's willing to go before them and plead her case before them. Does she not have a strength and courage that her husband just doesn't have? Abigail is a strong one in this marriage, 
And she points out something else too that is very important. It's a simple principle, very important. But that is when things are critical, don't get a fool involved in the plans. She doesn't even talk to him. I don't even want him involved. He's going to mess it all up. And she is going to go now and meet David. And she rode, it said, her donkey, and she comes before him. And these 400 men rampaging, um, well, they're not on horses, uh, but they're, they're, they're coming toward her. And she courageously just faces them. And it says here, it gives us an idea about how much David was worked up. You know how when you're really upset, you mutter to yourself, I can't believe that person did that. And you kind of work yourself up into even more anger. Boy, when I find them, I'm going to get, I mean, isn't that what David's doing here? Oh, surely in vain have I guarded, spent all this time with my men and we guarded and we did all these things and we did a good job. And this is how he responds. And then he gives this oath that we'll look at. Uh, next week. He does, he is careful enough to frame this oath so that he's not breaking a commandment. Unlike Saul, David is careful in this, but he's still not being careful enough. But he's careful, and we'll see why next week, because I don't want to take any more time tonight. But folks, what can we learn even from the beginning of this story? First of all, we want to be known in our character as the wise people. Maybe you say, well, I wouldn't mind being known as a beautiful person, too. Well, okay, that's fine. But you want to be known as the wise person, not the fool. And we need to pray, Lord, please help me not to have the character and testimony of a foolish person or one that does foolish things. And another thing I think is very evident, even in God's faithful people in his, with his faithful servants, we can have circumstances that push us over to the edge where we just get so angry that we're not even thinking. And if you find yourself at that point where you are operating in that way and you have not sought God's counsel, but you are just full vengeance mode, folks, uh, remember, unless God in his mercy stops you, you will do great damage in your life. Don't ever act out when you're angry, when you're filled with, with wrath, even if it's for a good cause. David had, um, David was wrong. Nobody would argue that, but he was handling it in the wrong way. Sometimes we can look at what people do to us and say, they did it. I can prove they're wrong and I'm going to teach them. I'm going to show them. And we, we act in angry wrath and do great damage, like a nuclear bomb going off. Be careful when you're angry. Right. Another thing that we're going to see more next week, folks, listen to wise counsel around you. For us men, God has given us wives that are wise. I know all of you. It behooves us to listen to them. If your wife goes to you and thinks of you and says, I really can't talk to him because I can't trust him. He won't understand um, that I want to obey God. That is not a good situation for your marriage to be in. But as Abigail shows here, be willing. God gives us our wives as wonderful helpmeets to provide wisdom for us, especially, by the way, when we're angry. If you're angry and your wife's trying to calm you down and say, just think about this, please do that. <laughs> it really will be of help to you. And as we go to prayer tonight, let's pray that we act in wisdom in our, in our testimonies in the community. Maybe the, Pray that the community, that people would never see us 
act, act out of anger or spitefulness or would never refer to us as fools, but would see our heart for Christ in our wise ways and want to know more.